Okay, uh, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 14. This will be our New Testament reading, familiar passage, verses 22 to 33. Before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your word gives light. And yet, Lord, our hearts are naturally dark and can't receive that light unless your Holy Spirit opens uh, the eyes of faith within us. So we pray that you would do that now um, so that we would listen as your people should and Believe and obey what you're about to reveal to us in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. Now let's turn back to Judges chapter 6. Verses 25 to 40. That night the Lord said to him, that is Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, 
Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Amen. You may be seated. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, there's a, a point where Christian tells his friend Hopeful a story about a man named Lil Faith. This is not one of the better known stories in the Pilgrim's Progress, but it's a good one. Little Faith is a, uh, was a good man, he says, who dwelt in the town of Sincere. Uh, but one day, he says that three sturdy rogues came galloping up, three brothers, in fact, named Faint Heart, Mistrust, and Guilt. Little Faith, he says, had neither power to fight nor fly, and so Faint Heart came up and demanded his money. Mistrust reached into his pocket and grabbed the money out, and as he started to cry for help, Guilt hit him over the head with a great club, and with that blow felled him flat to the ground where he lay bleeding as one that would bleed to death. But at last, he says, the thieves heard somebody coming down the road, and they were afraid that it might be the hero Great Grace from the nearby city of good confidence, and so they ran away and they left little faith to get up and scrabble on his way. There's another scene in part two that I want you to have in your minds as we go through this passage tonight. Uh, part two is the story of Christian's wife, uh, Christiana, and her journey to the celestial city, uh, accompanied by the hero Greatheart. And Greatheart, at one point, defeats uh, the giant despair, kills him, and uh, starts demolishing 
a giant despair's castle where Christian had been imprisoned in the first part. Um, And inside the castle, they find some of his prisoners, including a girl named Much Afraid. Some of you may know of a character by that name from another Christian uh, classic in the 20th century, but Bunyan said it first. Much Afraid was her name. And when Christiana and her daughter Mercy began to strike up some music after the demolition of the castle, uh, Much Afraid and one of her fellow prisoners now free go dancing down the road to the tune of that music that Christiana and Mercy are playing. Her partner, it says, could not dance without one crutch in his hand. But together, they did dance. Despair, defeated, and mercy playing the tune. Little faith and much afraid. And how often, if we, if we had to choose names for ourselves from Pilgrim's Progress, You might like to get a name like Great Heart or Faithful, one of those really positive names, but how often would Little Faith or Much Afraid be much more fitting for how we actually go through the Christian life and how often we kind of stumble through the Christian life, saying with that beleaguered father who came to Jesus, Lord, I I believe, help my unbelief. The fact is that we really could say the same thing, though, about very many of the characters in the Bible that we tend to think of as heroes, and yet you look more closely at their lives and you realize these two were often people of little faith who were very much afraid at many points in their lives. What made these people heroes was absolutely not the greatness of their faith or even the greatness of their faithfulness. What made them great, what made them heroes, was the faithfulness of the merciful God who used them for great things, who stooped to help them in the midst of their doubt and their fear, to use them for the things that he had determined to do through them. And nowhere is that more apparent, I think, than in the history of Gideon, especially in the part that we've read tonight. We're going to look at it in three parts this evening. First, the point of no return, verses 25 to 32. Second, the power of God's Spirit, verses 33 to 35. And third, God's patience with a little faith. Remember in Joshua 24, when Joshua tells the assembled leaders of Israel, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's happening here as we embark on this passage that we've just read is the Lord is forcibly presenting that same choice to Gideon. And it is a binary choice. You have to choose one or the other. You remember what happened in verse 6 that Israel cried out for help to the Lord. But it doesn't say that Israel repented of their idolatry. It just says that they, that they cried out for help because the Midianites were oppressing them. And when we come to the story of Gideon, we see that Gideon's own father still had an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. 
And so it seems that the people were crying out for help to God, but they weren't repenting of their idolatry. We have to understand from what God tells Gideon to do here is that it's not enough for us just to add God on top of the other things that we already ultimately love and ultimately fear, ultimately serve, uh, whatever our idols happen to be. And I invite you to just think back a little bit to some of the things we talked about this morning um, about our idol-loving culture. Um, all of those things that we expect to keep us safe, the things that we devote our lives to, sacrifice ourselves and the things and the people that we love uh, to gain and to protect. So easy to fall into this. There are people, if you look at their lives and you ask, what are they really devoted to? What are they really serving with their lives, with the core of who they are? And the answer would be pretty clear. For some people, it would be, maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, like those Epicureans, remember? Some people, it would be getting as much fun out of life as comfortably as possible. That's one form of idolatry. For other people, it's the desire to have power over others. For some people, it's recognition. For some people, it's professional success. They're all of these idols. And But then those same people will, will turn around and say, well, I'm also a Christian. What I'll do is I will have these idols as my fundamental commitments, the things that are really driving my life, but I'll add God on top of it to kind of baptize it all and make it all seem holy. I'll add God on top like a cherry to get me into heaven when it's all over or maybe to help me through a hard time in the middle of my life. But the Lord tells Gideon here something very different. That excludes that kind of mindset. He says, Gideon, the first thing I want you to do before you go and deliver the people from the Midianites, I want you to tear down that altar, your father's house. And I don't just want you to tear down the altar of Baal. I want you to hack down that Asherah pole, big wooden pole for the worship of the goddess Asherah of the Canaanites that was also there. And by the way... um, Scholars note that Gideon's name means hacker, not like a computer hacker, um, but uh, somebody who hacks away at something, like with an axe. And that is exactly what he ends up doing here with the Asherah idol. So there's a little bit of a play on words with his name. The Lord is calling Gideon to an exclusive commitment, an exclusive loyalty without compromise, without hedging, without playing both sides. His loyalty to the Lord is not something that can be added on top of some other more fundamental commitment to idolatry in his life or his family's life or his community's life or in Israel's life. They must choose this day whom they will serve. And Gideon is being called to give that answer to Joshua. gave, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm going to take the lead in making sure that that happens. Um even though I'm not the head of my household because I'm doing this at the Lord's direct command. Now, this was very dangerous for Gideon, you have to understand. The next day, the men of the city somehow deduce one way or another that he was the one who tore down the shrine, and so they want to kill him. Sheds light on the that detail that Gideon... Um, did all of these things the Lord told him to do by night because he was too, fra- too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. And here we see that dynamic at work that I was talking about earlier. Gideon is acting with faith 
but it's a little faith. In the end, he's obeying, but as he obeys, he is also, at the same time, much afraid. Hold that thought, because we're going to continue to see that play out in his life and other parts of the story. And look at the outcome of this. The town is coming, besieging the family's house, and wants Gideon's dad to bring him out so that he can be executed. And his dad says, seriously? Seriously, if, if, if you're so concerned about the honor of Baal, if Baal is really a god, shouldn't he be able to defend himself? Reminds me of the uh, mockery of Elijah when he is in his confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And um, the way Baal simply is not answering. All the Lord does answer. Consuming the sacrifice on that altar, much like he consumed Gideon's sacrifice last week. From another perspective, you could say that the point Gideon's father is making is a lot like the one that Paul was making in Athens that we looked at this morning, when he said that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And so he's saying, if our gods need us to come to his defense when his, uh, when his shrine gets broken down, maybe we need to reconsider our choice in gods. It reminds me of that scene in the Avengers where the Hulk takes Loki and he slams back and forth, wham, 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 and throws him on the ground and says, puny God. That's the kind of the effect of this humiliation of Baal that has taken place. And Gideon's dad is saying, if you really think Baal is a God, he can stand up for himself, can't he? But of course, the answer is silence, because there is no Baal. I want to think a little bit about how this relates to our Uh, modern idols. So people whose lives are wrapped up in how much money they can accumulate may think that money will keep them safe and happy. But if we're counting on our finances to keep us safe and happy, you know what that's going to make us? It's going to make us very anxious people. It's going to make us anxious because of the need we feel to protect our money and to maximize it. If you're so worried about protecting your wealth, then how come you're counting on that wealth to protect you? Again, it's very much along the same lines we were talking about this morning from Paul's speech in Athens. We can go with another example of relationships. We talked about how people idolize relationships and look for security and validation and acceptance and intimacy from other people in kind of an ultimate sense. And when that becomes your ultimate value, the thing that you're ultimately living your life for and looking to for security and comfort, that is also going to make you very a very anxious person. Why? Because you're anxious about the, the very thing that you're counting on to make you feel safe and happy because... It can let you down. You have to protect it. You have to work hard. You're afraid of losing it, and so you hold on to it for dear life, even if that means you end up smothering that relationship because you're holding on so tight. And what we ought to think is, wait a second, if I'm I'm feeling so worried about keeping this relationship secure, then why am I counting on this relationship to keep me feeling secure? See how it's contradictory. It doesn't work. 
We need to ask ourselves a serious question. Can our idols contend for themselves? Can they contend for themselves or do we have to keep propping them up? If we're having to prop up our idols, that should be a sign to us that those idols are not going to prop us up. They're simply going to fall down on top of us. See, the difference with the Lord, as opposed to Baal or Asherah or any of the gods in Athens, the Lord is different because he is the only one who is completely independent of us. He does not depend on us. We don't create him. He creates us. We don't give him anything he needs. He gives us everything that we need. And that's why only the Lord is worth ultimately trusting, ultimately relying on, ultimately loving and serving and devoting yourself to. Because he does not depend on you. And that means that you can depend completely on him. Something we ought to notice here is that this history of Gideon is kicking off here not just as a conflict between Israel and Midian. That's what we think. When you think of the story of Gideon, you think, oh, that's Israel versus the Midianites. God overcomes the Midianites. It's more than that, though. More fundamentally, it represents a conflict between the Lord and Baal. Between the Lord and Baal. Between truth and idolatry. And, um, of course, that's significant in kind of a sad way because of how Gideon's story ends. Uh, It ends with him leading Israel back into idolatry. Uh, But we won't borrow trouble. We'll get there when we get there to that kind of sad ending of his life. For tonight, it's good news in the life of Gideon. In both of these conflicts, Israel versus Midian and the Lord versus Baal, in both cases, the Lord wins. The Lord prevails. He's defeating Midian and their hold on Israel. And he's defeating Baal and Asherah and their hold on Israel as well. In both cases, the Lord is winning and he is delivering his people from bondage. Now this choice, Baal or the Lord. Gideon has now passed the point of no return. He's committed himself exclusively to the Lord. He has quite literally broken his ties with Baal worship. But that choice that Gideon has made is about to be put to the test in a very dramatic and serious way. Because now here come the Midianite and Amalekite army. Armies. Um, so committing to the Lord and making that decisive choice was one thing when the danger was still far away and he was relatively secure in his own hometown. But now that danger has come near. It's staring him and the rest of Israel right there in the face. And the text is laying out for us here the battle map here when it says. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan. They encamped in the valley of Jezreel, in the north central part of Israel. And the question is, who is now going to respond from the other side? Who is going to respond on Israel's behalf to stand up to this great threat that has come into the land? And the answer comes, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so, yes, Gideon was much afraid. Yes, Gideon had a little faith. But what makes the difference here is that Gideon was serving a great God, a fearless God. Think about that. God is never afraid of anything. And the Lord 
that great and fearless God had in fact chosen this man in his weakness on purpose so that this moment of responding to these armies would be all the more momentous. Gideon is not chosen to lead Israel into battle uh, because he's a man of great courage, not because he is a brilliant strategist or something. It's going to be because he has been clothed with God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why he's going to have success. That is why he's going to win. And that's what the Lord wants to make absolutely clear. And in fact, that is why he's chosen a man like Gideon. So there'll be no doubt in anyone's mind, Gideon did not have what it takes to defeat Midian uh, to defeat Midian and, and the Amalekites. But he is clothed with the Spirit of God. And that is why he's going to prevail. Now I want you to notice here how this, this kind of movement in Israel, this groundswell of resistance, uh, percolates kind of outward. And it starts where? This is important. It starts with Gideon's own family. It starts with the Abiezrites. That's his father's clan. So in, in Israel, you have, the, you have the tribes, but the tribes are subdivided into clans. Um, and, um, of course, among the Abiezrites, some of those were people who lived there in his hometown of Ophrah, and some of them had seen firsthand what Gideon had done to that altar and to that idol. They had heard his father's speech in his defense, They knew that the people had called for Gideon's life, but he had faithfully obeyed God and carried out the destruction of that idolatrous shrine. And they also had seen that Baal had not been able to do a thing about it. And so they must have realized, this is a man that we can follow. And from that clan, the movement spreads outward a little farther now to Gideon's tribe. It says he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And then beyond that, it says he begins to gather people from the other tribes from the rest of Israel. Um, And so what you see here is that Gideon's obedience is contagious. It's spreading. Israel is gathering to him. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord is clothing him. And and when it says that, when it says the Spirit of the Lord clothed him, it's not saying that Gideon was some kind of super spiritual person. It's not talking about his piety. It's not talking about his inward character. Um, In fact, it's interesting when you look at the various Old Testament examples of people who are clothed with the Spirit of God or where the Spirit of God rushes upon someone, it, it is not always, in fact, it often is not somebody of strong spiritual character inwardly. Um, this something similar is going to happen to Jephthah, and he has all kinds of problems in his life. Uh, it's going to happen to Samson, uh, one of the most morally depraved judges in the whole book. It's going to happen to Saul, and then after him it's going to happen to David, uh, in the exception to this trend that I'm laying out for you. The point is not all of those are godly men by any stretch of the imagination, but what they all have in common It's not the strength of their faith. It's not the rigor of their achievements for God. What they all have in common is the power of God that worked through all of those broken and messed up and sinful men to accomplish what he wanted to do. And I want us to understand together tonight that this pattern that you see in the life of Gideon and some of those other men is still a way that Christ is working today. Actually, specifically, let's, let's zero back in here on this, uh, the, the dynamic of the concentric circles of this movement. Um, 
as we remember that what, what began as a personal commitment to God by this one individual man, Gideon, spread outward first to his family, and from his family it spread outward more broadly until it impacted all of God's people, or God's people as a whole. And I want to encourage you tonight, especially for uh, the men, for heads of households, I want to encourage you tonight in particular that for you to make an impact for good on the church, that has got to start with leading your family in the things of God. And if you want to lead your family in the things of God, then that requires of you the same thing it required of Gideon. It starts with a personal devotion to God on your part that follows through in action even when it's costly. A devotion to God that your family can look at and you can see this man really believes what he says. Because I can see his love for God in sacrificial, self-denying, costly action. It's when you're contending against your own idols, the idols of your own heart, and putting them to death and tearing them down in your own life. Your family is able to see that. That's when the way is going to be paved for your family to follow and for others in the church to follow your family. And I've purposely singled out heads of households. But really, the same principle is true for everyone. It's even true for children. That the more basic principle is that obedience is contagious in the family of God. Obedience is contagious in the family of God. We all know that sin is. That's obvious to see. There's that downward drag. It's very easy for sin to be catching, for us to follow one another into rebellion and all kinds of wickedness. That's how Israel got to be idol worshippers in the first place, right? It was because they were influenced by the Canaanite nations around them. That idolatry was contagious. But what we see here with Gideon is that obedience is also contagious, Faithfulness among godly people inspires faithfulness in others. It's how we become that iron sharpening iron in one another's lives. The Bible speaks of it. I also want you to be encouraged that everything that I've just described is not a special calling just for spiritual superheroes of some kind, for like the elite shock troopers of the church. That is not what Gideon was. This calling to obedience and faithfulness is for ordinary people of little faith who are sometimes very much afraid. But, and this is what makes all the difference, but we have been clothed. And not just clothed like these Old Testament people who experienced the special power of God for a limited time and a limited purpose In Christ, we have something even better because in Christ, we have, in fact, been filled with the Holy Spirit. Given the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession, a down payment of all of the glories of heaven to come. It's the Holy Spirit who is going to help us to hack our idols down in our own hearts and in our families and in our church and in our communities. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to Help us to spur on others to obedience and faithfulness. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to help us to fight the good fight of faith against our imposing foes. And why is that? It's because he's the Spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ who is clothed with the Spirit. When you see all these men 
clothed with the Spirit in the Old Testament. All of those are pictures. They are pointing us forward to the one who is going to receive the Spirit without measure. Lord Jesus Christ, who lived his entire life and went through his entire ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, and now has poured out that same Spirit, sharing that Holy Spirit in abundance with us as his people. That is the way we live the Christian life. We live it clothed with the Spirit of God. And that is why the Christian life can be lived even by people of little faith who are much afraid. And as though to put an exclamation point on that aspect of this in the life of Gideon, to remove any doubt in our minds that it is the Spirit of God and not some innate gift in Gideon that's going to win the victory. The Lord gives us the scene that ends this chapter about uh, this famous fleece. Uh, As you're probably aware, there are many ways, there's some ways this passage can be misinterpreted, right? Many people, unfortunately, have taken this story of the fleece as an example Uh, kind of a model for how believers ought to discover the will of God. Many people think that on the basis of this passage, what we're supposed to do in the Christian life is we're supposed to ask for signs from God as a primary way of God guiding us to make the right choices in our lives. That simply is not what this passage is teaching. There's no indication in the text that we're being given this as a model to go and do likewise. This this passage is not saying, look at godly Gideon. When he wanted to know what to do, look what he did. Now you go and do the same thing. No, the point is the opposite of that, in fact. The point is for us to look at this passage and and to hear, "Look look at poor, fearful Gideon. Look at poor, fearful Gideon who knows already what God's will for him is. There is no question about what God had commanded him to do. The pathway was clear. He knew what he was commanded to do. He's not seeking to discover some new information here. What's happening? What's happening is Gideon is craving reassurance. He's craving reassurance. He he knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what God has promised, in fact, and yet he still needs the sign. Even though God had already given him a sign, a, a staggering supernatural sign, and the angel of the Lord consumed the sacrifice, and yet he needs to ask for another one. On the other hand, there's another way to misinterpret this and to say, oh, look at Gideon, what a terrible person he is for asking for a sign and not just taking God at his word. And this is really the flip side, to approach the passage that way is really the flip side of the same coin. On the one hand, people are trying to find in this passage a model a model of what to do. On the other side, people are trying to find a model of what not to do. But both are misreading the text. Now, to be clear, um, we can when we look at the whole Bible and interpret Scripture with Scripture, we can tell that um, we should not be putting out fleeces to try to make decisions in life. And so, 
And there's a sense in which this is a negative example. We should not be acting like Gideon. We should not be asking God for signs. As Jesus puts it, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. It's something Christians ought not to do. But the main point, the point of this passage, is neither to commend Gideon nor to condemn him. The point of the passage is to show us something about the Lord. It's to show us yet again in the life of Gideon how patient Patient, patient the Lord is with a person of little faith who is much afraid. Lord, please don't be angry with me. Please just give me this one more sign. You think, if somebody had asked us that, think how you or I might have responded to that kind of hesitancy, that kind of reluctance to obey, that kind of doubt and wavering, that craving for reassurance. We would not have been so tender, so kind, so patient, 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 as the Lord is. As he gives Gideon these signs he asks for, without a word of rebuke, not because... He needs to give you any. He needs to give Gideon any new information, not because he's trying to teach us that you should go and do the same thing. What the Lord is wanting to do here is to show you what He is like. The Lord is showing you His character to reassure you of how patient He can be with you. We started out by reading that story of Peter, what faith he showed. like Gideon, in one sense. What devotion to God, what willingness to risk everything to obey when Peter got out of the boat to walk to Jesus on the water. Connect that in your mind with Gideon destroying those hometown idols. Both these men taking this great step of faith at great personal risk to themselves, but then immediately you see the other side of their character. You see that weakness. You see that frailty of their faith. When Peter looks around and he sees the wind and he begins to sink. When Gideon looks into the valley at that carpet of Midianite tents covering it. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He reached out his hand and he took hold of him, rescued him from sinking in the water. He said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You have to understand that is a searching question. It is a hard question. But it is also a restoring question. It's a restoring question, and I think it's the question that this passage from the life of Gideon poses to us tonight as well. As our Savior picks up those little faith pilgrims who've been beaten down, sets us back up on our feet as he teaches our much-afraid hearts to dance to the tune of his mercy. And just in closing, I want to leave you with one final thought, and this is from Charles Spurgeon. I've shared some of this with you before. Spurgeon says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus, but Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. Remember, Spurgeon says, it is not 
thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits, and therefore look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope, and look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We are people of little faith, and we are often much afraid. We serve a fearless Christ, and it is his power and his spirit that have rescued us from our sin that are going to see us through all the way to the end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for uh, the story of Gideon's strength through your spirit. We're also thankful for the story of Gideon's weakness and your patience with him. We're so thankful for your patience with us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to endure and to obey through the strength that you supply as we serve our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, who's been so patient with us. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.